and this is The Sacred Podcast, and my name is Elizabeth Oldfield. Every episode, I speak to someone who has some kind of role in shaping our common life. Journalists, politicians, artists, filmmakers, faith leaders, and more. I deliberately speak to people from wildly different political and metaphysical positions who disagree on anything and everything. And I hope if you run your eye down the list of previous guests, you won't be able to spot a tribe or a type. And that's because I'm interested in the deep stuff that drives us, the principles that shape these people who are so formative for the life that we share together. And I'm really interested in the ways we seem to be increasingly divided, increasingly quick to finger point and write each other off, and what we might learn through listening deeply, whether it's possible to have a bit more empathy and understanding, not least because I think if we're going to build a livable, humane future, we're going to need all of us. In this last episode of our series, I've got a really fun one for you because I spoke to Dame Prue Leith. Prue is a pioneering restaurateur, a word I still, honestly, slight divergence, don't think really exists. It should be restaurateur, but it's not because it came from French. It is restaurateur, businesswoman, a novelist, a cookery writer, and a television presenter, of course. She's also the mother of one of our previous guests, MP Danny Kruger, who we refer to a little bit. So if any of that's confusing, you can go back and listen to Danny's episode. Prue and I spoke about her childhood in South Africa, her experience of the Alpha Course, why it's really possible to love people we might deeply disagree with, and the social and cultural role of the Great British Bake Off. There are some reflections from me at the end, and next week I'll actually be doing a whole series reflection and announcing some exciting news about our next series, so I hope you'll tune into that. In the meantime, here is Prue. Prue Leith, it is a busy morning for you in America, and you have very kindly agreed to chat to me, and I'm going to be incredibly mean, which is not do the standard warm-up let's ease ourselves into this thing, but we're going to go deep because I'm interested in principles and values and the stuff under um, all of your amazing achievements and activities. And the way I usually frame this is what's sacred to you. Some people really like that word. Some people really hate that word. You could ignore it if you like, but it's really just trying to get to, are there principles or values that you've tried to live by? We all fail, but you've tried that you think have shaped the woman that you are today. Well, yes, I think they have. And I think that by and large, I have managed to live to them. To them, And they're very boring. I mean, I just think you have to be, um, and I hope I am, um, straight with people. It's quite difficult sometimes because it's easier if you want to be nice. You sometimes can't be straight. But um, I think in business, and I've spent a lot of time in business, almost the most important thing is to remember that everybody in that whole chain of the business matters as much as everybody else. And treating everybody equally is is really important to me. And I hope that I'm never dismissive of people who are less important. Of course, it's impossible to get not get a, a bit starstruck. I mean, obviously, I, I'd be more, uh, my heart would beat faster if I was um, 
you know, dealing with Prince Charles than if I'm dealing with a dustman. But I hope I would be as nice to the dustman as I would be to, to the king. That doesn't sound boring at all. It sounds um, incredibly fundamental and not that easy to live by. As you said, you have to be pretty dogged about it. I'd love to hear a bit about your childhood because I have a hunch that it's not unconnected and particularly any big ideas that were in the air, religious, philosophical, political or other. What were the kind of shaping, uh, the shaping atmosphere like as you were growing up in South Africa? Well, it was a very long time ago. So um, most people's um, social mores and manners were a bit um, tighter than they are today. But I grew up in a, in a household where, um, I mean, dishonesty, any kind of dishonesty was frowned up on. My father thought that telling a lie was a, a sin. Hmm. So I think the sort of honesty, and I think, although we, were, we, we didn't go to church and we were not a Christian family, and my father indeed was, not, was a definite atheist, um, my mother was a bit sort of, um, you know, she would go to church occasionally. Interested. But, but we certainly, I think almost everybody in South Africa in the sort of middle class white community that we lived in, um, the, the background would have been a Christian um, do unto others as you have them, you know, being sort of the Christian ethic would have been what we went. And I went to a very religious school. I went to a convent school. Wow. And so, um, and when I was 11, I was so religious. I was completely um, boring about it. And I spent a lot of time on my knees praying for my father, who I was convinced would be going to hell fire because he didn't believe in God. So, yeah, I, I think, yes, I think I was brought up very to behave properly, to behave respectfully to everybody, never to be, because um, we had a lot of servants, because we were, you know, middle-class South African family under the iniquitous apartheid regime. regime. Mm. But we were always taught to be very polite and, and um, um, friendly to all of us, you know, the gardener and the cook and the, Housemaid. How much was the reality of apartheid talked about at home? How how did your parents kind of posture themselves? Well, my with mother, it? funnily enough, I thought when I when I went to university, um, I was quite very proud of my mother because she was an actress and she used to campaign against apartheid at the time. You could not have um, a black and white audience together to watch mm -hmm. a play. Theoretically, you could have separate audiences coming at separate days to, to your play. But, of course, it just meant that there were never any sh um, plays for black people because there weren't enough black people who were educated enough to want to come to Ibsen or Shakespeare or when she was a Shakespearean actress. So there wasn't, the, there wasn't a black audience to make it economic to run a theatre that was just for, um, or, to, or to run a single show that was just for black people. So, um, 
so anyhow, she was campaigning to, for mixed audiences. And she was, I remember she used to come home from standing on the town hall steps. And I remember once she came home and she had a black coat and it was all streaked with egg yolk because people had been throwing eggs at eggs at them and mm. she belonged to a women's um group it was called the black sash um and because these women would stand with black sashes on them you know uh, protesting about apartheid and when i became when i went to university of course i joined a group of students who were protesting about not uh, black students not being allowed to come to our university there was a black university mm. called Fort Hare, which was actually quite a good university but it was um, it was only for black people, and since education stopped at the age of ten, the free education stopped at the age of ten for black people. For for white kids like me, it went on free right through university. Our, wow. our university was free too. Um, so uh, it was sort of deliberate. It was a, a de- deliberate ruse to make sure that there was a massive working class uneducated, un, um, unempowered mm. um, workforce, labor force. Um, anyway, so I uh, went, you know, w- would walk down Adley Street in Cape Town protesting about this. And once I got arrested with, with a bunch of other students, and I felt really quite pleased because I thought my street cred would go up because I'd spend the night in jail. But the police took one look at me and realized I was just a, um, you know, a camp follower, not a leader. So I I never got my night in jail, which actually I'm rather pleased about because knowing what went on in jail, you you didn't want to go to jail. Yeah. So I was a, I came from a liberal family. I thought that we were tremendously, um, you know, right on and liberal and and correct. But it wasn't until I got to um, Europe that I realized how sort of ingrained um, prejudice is. If you grow up in a country where you never see a black person socially, you never shake the hand of a black person, you don't sit on the same bench as a black person. That when I got to Paris and found myself on the left bank of the university, sitting in a cafe, say, out in the street with a girlfriend or something, and a couple of um, Nigerians or, um, uh, or Alger- Algerians or Nigerians or black people, would, students would slide in and start talking to us. And, and it was, um, to me, an absolute revelation because I'd never had mm-hmm. any social contact. Yeah. Although... One of my earliest memories is my Zulu nanny, who was called Emma, who I absolutely adored. And I can remember the feeling of being held, as, as probably my earliest memory of being held by her, and how comforting it was to have my cheek, I suppose I, if I'd been crying or something, it would be, my cheek would be hot, but her apron, which was white and um, cotton, would be cool. Mm. on my cheek but if I put my face too near the edge of her shoulder she had a frilly um, uniform which had a a white 
grippier, lace, scratchy lace. On, on, and I didn't like that. So I remember sort of nestling into her neck to get into the cool, white, part, um, smooth part of her apron. Um, so there was real close contact between little children and their nannies. Mm. Because my mother was an actress. She was at work a lot. I spent a lot of time with my nanny. And, but it, and it didn't, it, at that time, it didn't seem to me odd that uh, I'd go with my brother um, on the bus. And my brother and I would go to the front of the bus, as all kids like to be in the front of the bus. But my nanny had to sit at the back of the bus. And we didn't think that was funny. I, we didn't think it was odd because we yeah. grew up with it. I wanted to fill in one gap, which is I know that you are an atheist um, because your son told me. Um, and when you were 11, you were, you said, boringly Christian, <laughs> praying for your father. What happened? What, how did you get from A to B? You know, I don't know. Um, but, but my atheism has got more and more confirmed as I've got older. And, and Daniel has tried very hard. I mean, he made me go and do the Alpha course. How was it? I think he was trying to save my soul. Um, well, what I did you think of it, Prue? Funny, I thought it was a lot of rubbish. Um, I thought it was absolute nonsense. I thought that, and also I found that the whole thing of all the, I mean, it, it was like a big dating agency. Lots of young people having a lovely time in a big church, um, eyeing each other, and quite right too. That's, that, that's a good, I'm all for that. But they also sang the most boring songs. I mean, honestly, the, the, the sort of um, evangelical music canon is just so boring. You know, Jesus loves you, Jesus loves On and on and on and on and on. And somebody's strumming badly on a guitar. So the, the surrounds weren't great. Um, what I liked about it was it was very friendly and, I, and the people were absolutely sweet. But honestly, um, I just found it such, I just thought it was nonsense. And, um, and, and there was no, I think all atheists complain of this because Christians are so confident in their belief. And good bully for them. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm not saying they shouldn't believe. Of course they should if they want to, and it does them good. And, and I have to say that I think Daniel's conversion to, to um religion or coming to God has improved him no end. I have to admit that. I'm thanks to Emma. You know, Emma got him into it. And, and um, he's a much more open and uh, sort of more in touch with his feelings, more loving, more, he's much nicer. So um, God has done him good. I'm always interested in how we engage across these differences, right? How we have how we stay in relationships, how we stay in conversations with people who believe different things from us, whether that's politically or religiously. Um, I was reading your novel, The Gardener, which I have to say I absolutely loved and has been quite um, m meaningful as I am in the process of getting into gardening. It really gave me the sense of like joy and creativity. I'm so, I'm so useless, but I hope to one day, you know, have a little tiny yeah, um, yes. bit of a garden like that. But the... Um, there's a poem at the front of that novel, uh, which is about God and gardens. And I had a theory as I was reading it. I wondered, I think you published it in 2007, 2008, whether it's very subtle, but it sounds to me like in that novel, you are 
having a conversation out loud with Danny, maybe that he has recently become a Christian or maybe it was when you were on the Alpha course that you were writing that novel, but it's, it's shot through there. And the, 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 the poem goes, um, and yet the fool contends that God is not, not God in gardens when the eve is cool. Nay, but I have a sign. Tis very sure God walks in mine. I'm just intrigued. Yeah. Where did that come from? And is my theory complete nonsense or is there something in it? It's a very famous old poem. Um, and my mother used to quote it, you know, yeah. um, uh, God what rose plot fringe fool. A various school of peace or something. And and of course a garden is all that. And I've often said, Daniel and I had a conversation once years ago, and I said, look, I understand the feeling of, you know, when you sit on top of a mountaintop and, and you're so um, amazed at the beauty or the peace or the the, the magnificence of nature that you want to attribute it to a a, a being, a mind, a, you know, whatever. Um, but I I can't be do I, I just can't be doing with any of the gods that I've ever met. Maybe if there was a better one. And frankly, you know, I, I'm I'm sure you're Christian, so you'll probably be insulted by this. But I just find the whole idea of a god. Needs to be worshipped, wants to be praised, night, morning, night, and day, is rather despicable. You know, I mean, what kind of? Why would one worship somebody who wants all that? I'm unoffendable. Oh, good. <laughs> and I also feel that the sort of the way um, religious people feel that they have to own the whole world, that that everybody else is wrong and they are right. Um, it's just so illogical. Some people hate the word spirituality, but I'm sort of, I'm picturing you in your garden with your hands in the soil. Do you have practices or places that are especially meaningful for you or that play a similar role in your life? No, I don't. Um, I don't. I mean, I certainly enjoy uh, my hands in the soil. I, I like the physicality of gardening. I think I certainly... Um, I'm lost in wonder and admiration or at, at beauty. I just don't attribute it to a God. Mm. But I certainly have those feelings. And people may call that spirituality, but I don't think it is. But, but I don't hate the word. I just don't really understand it. Yeah. It's very much a mind word. I don't word, understand I any more than I understand religion or, or God. I don't understand it, but I don't think that's reason to decry it. I think... I mean, people can't believe that um, Daniel and I dis disagree so much on so many things hmm. um, that are very good friends, and I love him to bits, and I think he loves me. But why? Why do you have? Why do people have to agree with you for you to like them? Yes, it's ridiculous. Why do you have to hate other people's religions? Why do? You, why don't you just let them get on with it? I mean, I'm I'm really into tolerance. Yeah. <laughs> I think if we, the whole world was just a whole lot more tolerant, we'd all be better off. And does it lead to, whether it's religion or assisted dying or one of the other things you guys disagree on, I don't know, maybe across the family, are you the kind of family that sit around a table and have a, a good Barney about it or you just decide not to talk about the things that you don't agree on? Um, I don't talk to Daniel about... Um, We've had a few serious conversations over the years, um, but no, we don't talk to it very much. I think mainly because I think that that religious people find 
atheists, sac- um, sacrilegious, they're offended by it. Uh, things that I would say would be offensive to Daniel for very good reasons because to him I'm insulting Jesus or I'm insulting something to him which to him is really precious so not wanting to insult him and yet not being able to you know I mean I can talk talk to you I'm rather enjoying talking to you because I can say these things um, without you getting offended but he would be distressed yeah and I think that's true um, for a lot of people. Um, but we have had, I mean, I remember when my first husband died, um, his father, um, Daniel's father, um, I was really in a bad way, very distraught. And one day I was lying on a, on a table outside um, the kitchen um, in, 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 in our country house. And I was crying, and Daniel came out and found me there. And he said, Mum, honestly, if you would only let Jesus into your heart, um, if you would only open your – this, you would not be so unhappy. You know, you would know that you'd see Dad again, and, and you'd know that um, – and I, I meant to say to him, Daniel, do you think that I would – you know, if I could believe this stuff – and it could help me, I would believe it, but I can't believe it. I just do not believe it. And, uh, yeah. you know, I'm frankly too honest to pretend that I'm, don't, that I do this. Anyhow, a few days I thought about this, you know, opening my heart and all this stuff. And I was down staying with some friends in Cornwall with my dog. And um, it was just a few weeks after Wolf maybe a few months, I don't remember, but soon after Raina died. And I went for a walk by myself along the, the Cornish coast by St. Just in Roseland. And I went into that little church, which is right on the cliffs, you know, on, above the sea. And all around the um, churchyard um, was these wonderful Cornish slates, big, tall slates um, with people's names um, recorded, you know. So everybody who died in that village since 1400 or something has their name on a slate. And it was fascinating because, you know, it had sort of um, uh, plowman or um, needlewoman or um, all sorts of wonderful old trades that no longer exist. And then the latest ones were technologists and and, um, modern, you know, very modern trades. And I just thought this is amazing. All these people, all these years have believed in God and they put that and they they feel that having their names recorded somehow it's all to do with keeping memories alive and so on. Anyway, I went into the church and I um, I was sitting there with my dog (laughs) and I started to cry and and I was sort of kind of angry um, and I found myself I was talking aloud because I was not entirely alone it was very early in the morning and I started sort of berating God and saying well look here here I am I'm in your church I'm I'm sitting here do your stuff then you know if, hmm. you, if you really want me this is your moment you know come into my heart I'm yeah sitting <laughs> anyhow no no reaction of course so 
And then I suddenly realized that I was shouting. I mean, that was quite a relief. I was just having a some half crying, half shouting. <laughs> and, and, and then I suddenly realized the dog was getting quite agitated. So I turned to look at the dog. And I realized there was a woman standing there. <gasps> and, she, and she had a couple of um, baskets of flowers, a bucket and a baskets of flowers, and she'd come in to do the flowers. And I, I thought, oh, my God, I can't have a conversation with her now. So I walked past her, and in true English fashion, I said, good morning. And she lovely said, day. lovely day. <laughs> we just passed each other. <laughs> oh well, that was that was my attempt to get God to get get a grip. Oh, that's such a beautiful, tender, <laughs> hilarious story of grief and good manners. Um, <laughs> thank you for sharing that. So, I wanted to talk about what I have written in my notes as your moxie, because you have uh, it's a kind of uh, a, a, just a sense of courage and confidence and um, gung-ho approach to life comes through. As soon as you start kind of reading about all the amazing things you've done, you know, people tend to know you now um, for Bake Off most easily, but it's like this tiny, tiny few lines in the story of your life, which is incredibly successful businesswoman, restaurateur, um, a very successful novelist. You've just thrown yourself at life. And uh, you told me that when you uh, were putting together, what I'd love to hear the story of the motto that was rejected with the initials JFDI. Um, <laughs> I'm very sad it was rejected and I want to know what you ended up with, but could you just tell me a bit about that, that motto, that spirit and where you think it comes from? Um, I don't know where um, my sort of enthusiasm for life or my... Um, doggedness. I'm very dogged. I tend, if I'm going to do something, I get on and do it. I'm not sure where that comes from. I think mostly my mother, she, because she was an actress um, and had a little theatre company and goodness knows being an actress and having a theatre company, especially in South Africa, is is a tough job. And, um, but she was very good at it. And so I presume some of that. My father was a businessman and very successful, so I must have collected some of this from them. But I also think it's quite simple. It's just that I've got a lot of energy and I'm um and I'm I have a very optimistic nature, which I think is just to do with the serotonin levels in my brain. I'm just lucky because I'm fairly happy and optimistic. And if you take all that combination then you you want to do stuff because you're happy and you're energetic and you you know life is good and and um so so that's probably where the gung-ho thing comes from where the confidence comes from i don't know i think it's often very misplaced i (laughs) i will think i can do something and i absolutely can't um i remember once decided when we were about uh, when leader was about you know that age when little girls do cartwheel cartwheels all the time. I think it must be six or seven or something. And she was trying to learn to do a cartwheel and she could do a perfect handstand, but she couldn't yet do a cartwheel. And I said, oh, darling, I'll show you what you have to do. And because I could remember doing cartwheels when I was that age, but I'd forgotten. I mean, I just passed me by that I was, um, you know, 
probably three stone heavier than then. And I put down in one hand to throw myself down. And of course, my arm wasn't strong enough to hold the rest of my body. And I just clumped sort of head first into the lawn. <laughs> it's a disaster. And I, it's sort of, it, it's kind of the story of my life. You know, I, I, I took a job um, to be a presenter of a television program in time tees when I had never, ever been on television. And then I was going to be, be the presenter. Why did I think I could do it? And actually, I was very bad at it, and I hated it. But I, you know, I, I, I don't know where. It's completely not always misplaced, because quite often when you throw yourself into something, you learn quite fast. And you find yeah. When I opened, my, I opened my restaurant, having never, ever worked in a restaurant, but I was fairly confident about that because I knew what I wanted as a restaurant. I knew that I wanted the kind of restaurant that I'd like to go to, which would be really good food and very nice and comfortable and quite smart. But the waiters would be nice to you and yeah. they wouldn't look down on you because you ordered the house wine and they would be friendly. And, you know, because at the time, all the restaurants in, in London, the smart ones were in hotels. They were white tablecloths, and they were so snobby that anybody like me, in a young student, wouldn't have dared to go in, even if you had the money. Yeah. Because they they just looked at you. If you wore a backpack, you couldn't come in. If you didn't have an eye on, you couldn't come in. If you didn't, um, and and if you if you ordered the house wine, you were not worth serving. Um, so I I wanted to change that. Um, Prue, are you telling us that you are responsible for the change in restaurant culture that means now where we are with small plates and informal dining? Do you claim credit? <laughs> no, but I must have been a little bit to do with some of it. I mean, certainly I had the first restaurant which had no, we didn't have the, we didn't write the menu in French. We didn't, um, we didn't um, have any dress rules. We, we, you know, we had no dress code. We stayed open late. Customers, you know, as, as long as they were there, we'd feed them. We didn't say, you know, this place closes at 10 o'clock. Yeah. So, it feels yeah, to me like you have the opposite of imposter syndrome, which sounds like it should make you arrogant, but that's not what comes across with you because it feels like you just have quite a high tolerance of failure that you think it's always worth a try. Yeah, I Did think you not start your catering company without an actual kitchen, living somewhere with no kitchen? Yeah, yes, yes true. No, I, I, know, I don't know why it is, but I, I, I certainly don't feel imposter s syndrome, I, except in the sense that um, I, I often feel I'll be found out. I mean, when I became, certainly when I was put on all those um, business boards and I became a director of the Halifax Bank, for example, I certainly felt an imposter then. Mm. Um, and, I, and I was an imposter in a way because I didn't really understand half the stuff. And, but at least I was honest enough to say so. And I remember, I think I probably put this in the book, I can't remember. But I remember um, there was a discussion going on about what we did with the, the large amounts of money overnight and and we, we had a finance guy who was explaining to us about where all our money was and he kept talking about derivatives and I had no idea what a derivative was and I thought this is you know um, 
this is absolutely beyond me. And I thought, well, I have to just fess up because it's not right to be sitting here pretend, nodding sagely and pretending I know what we're talking about. So I said, Chairman, sorry, can I just stop it for a minute? And I said, I have no idea what a derivative is. Can somebody explain? And he said, oh, uh, Prue, don't worry. Um, I'll give you a little lesson not to, you know, he, he, he said, don't worry, I'll t- tell you later. Um, and I sat down, and as I sat down, the guy next to me, who was, had been a board member of ICI and was a, a he was the personnel director and then the, uh, on the board of ICI. So he was the big cheese. And as I sat down, he said, I haven't a clue what a derivative is either. And I thought, well, thank God. Thank but goodness. It would be nice if you'd said so. Yes. <laughs> and I think, I just, I do think that I can be quite brave. I honestly, I find it very inspiring. It's really nice to have someone in public who doesn't have imposter syndrome, but isn't arrogant. It's just trying to use their gifts and give stuff a go and just effing do it. It really, um, it really feels powerful to me. And I wanted to uh, dig in a bit more to your politics, actually, because I think there is the assumption, because you have a Tory MP for a son and publicly voted Brexit, that you were kind of straightforwardly conservative. But I don't, I don't think that's right, is it? There's something more, what, what are your kind of deep political convictions, and how's that shown up? I think I have, I'm, I've now voted twice for the Tories, but uh, only recently, and maybe that's... You've seen a lot of elections, yeah, if that's not uh, offensive, sorry. <laughs> no, but I don't, belong, I don't, I don't, I'm not a Tory party member. I've on, only recently voted Tory, and I think mainly because... Labour was such a disaster. And all the people I had voted for in my long long life of voting were in the woolly middle, you know, the um, the Liberal Democrats and the um, Social Democratic Party and so on. So I've always voted for that squishy middle. Um, But it seems hopeless, you know, they, they... there's no point in voting for the Liberals or anybody in the middle now. So I sort of slightly reluctantly, um, and then when Corbyn came in, I mean, you, that's no. You have, for someone in the woolly middle, you do have a campaigning streak, right? You have been someone quite vocal about uh, uh, particular issues, particularly access to good food. Do you say a bit mm. more about that? Yes, well, I, I'm, I'm. I, do, I, I think I have a, it's part of my bossy streak. I have a bossy um, streak and I'm quite opinionated and um, don't mind, and I like to interfere. So I, if I think things are going wrong, I, I would like to find a way to fix them. I don't, I don't think I should just complain. I think get in there and try and help. And I think that's one of the reasons that I loved chairing the RSA because the RSA is an organization which was absolutely built on the idea that if there's a hole in society and it needs fixing, let's try and find a way to fix it. And then as soon as that, if that works, then you've done that bit and you you, you set up a charity. If you look at what the RSA has done over the years, it's, a you know, all sorts of organizations owe their origins to somebody trying to fix, you know, the Royal Academy wouldn't be there. The 
Lifeboats Association, the National Trust, all these things, the RSA had a hand in starting. <laughs> and so I'm very activist in that sense. Um, and I feel so strongly and passionately that if we don't get children's food right and we don't teach them to love good, healthy food, we haven't a hope because while they would prefer to eat chips and ice cream, um, we will never get anywhere. And so I think the answer is to teach them to cook and then to teach. And then um, they will gradually get to, if you teach them all about food, not just about cooking, but about food politics and, and um, sustainability and provenance and all that stuff, they'll become interested in food and they'll eat well. But yeah, I am, I am a campaigner, um, but only about things I really, really care about. Yes. Um, did, has Daniel talked to you about um, assisted dying? Yes, a little bit. I know that's close to your close to your heart, and you disagree with him very much on. Yes, I do. Um, well, maybe with with that, and you know, publicly voting for Brexit, which I have no interest in talking about particularly, but. When you stick your head above the parapet on those things, the, sadly, the reality is now you do often receive a lot of abuse. Oh, yeah. And I know that you have been through that. What was that experience like? And what did you take from that kind of really vicious trolling around um, around Brexit in particular? Yes. I know, it's so amazing. Why, do, why should people mind if I voted Brexit? Uh, and why, why does that make me a villain, villainess? I don't understand it. Yes, it was it was horrible, but I mean, I've now been trolled for all sorts of reasons, not just Brexit. You know, the latest one is that I'm I'm a kitten drowner. Because you, if you read my novel, I mean, my, if you read my autobiography, there's a passage in it when I my mother is was drowning some kittens. Um, anyway, I was eleven. Yeah. Years, I was eleven years old, and in those days, there was the only way, way you could, could control cat a wild cat population was to drown yeah. because there was no such thing as neutering or um and people are cross with you about that oh yes no i'm the kitten drowner don't 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 ever watch bake-off again i mean that woman drowns kittens but what bake-off does seem to me to do is create a a kind of island that somehow at least tries to and often does sit above that very tribal, often quite toxic, roiling public conversation in which it seems we're just finding it harder and harder to tolerate each other and it's getting more and more socially acceptable to just be abusive to other people. It occasionally gets attacked for being kind of too woke, obviously by newspapers who think there's too many brown people on it. But how much, I know the producers will have the main kind of say on this, but how much do you and the team deliberately try and make it a place of unity and of friendliness and of people who might be very different politically and socially and economically and religiously can just be friends in a tent. How much is that baked in? I don't, I don't think, to, to the, be honest, I would, I mean, I'd tell you if it was true, but I honestly don't think any of us make an effort. It's just effortless because the whole atmosphere is like that. I think we're probably chosen because we are likely to be kind. Yeah. Um, and um, I think that the bakers, the, the, first, the, thing, the interesting thing about bakers 
is that the, the way they choose the bakers is by, see, it's all about who can bake the best. It's all about the bake. And until they get right, you know, the, the thousands and thousands of people apply. I mean, I, I forget how many, 10,000 people or something apply. <clears throat> and, and then, and all the time they're being tested and emailed and asked to send samples in and questioned and examined, really, to find out how good a baker they are. Just one sec. They send samples in. Do they have to send, like, flapjacks in the post? Yeah. No, they, yes, they do. And, they, and first of all, they send pictures. First of all, they send recipes. Then they send pictures. Then they send what they actually bakes. And then they go and have an audition. And they, it's a long, long process to get on Bake Off. And by the end, we know that they're really good. And they're all really good. And then when they're down to, I don't know, a couple of hundred or something, they then start thinking, well, we, we better make sure that they're not all um, the Men. same. Or all white. Yeah. Yeah. Not, not only ethnically different, but that they're not, that they're from different regions of a country, that they're from, that they're representative. We just have to yeah. then make sure they're representative. And that means making sure that we have um, somebody who's LBGT, somebody who's, who's, uh, who's um, so we just try to make yeah. it as representative as we can without overdoing it. You know, we don't, we want it to be truly representative. And so yeah. it's perfectly all right to have white middle-class women in there because there are yeah. white middle-class bakers. Yes. They're not the only ones um, who bake, but they do bake a lot. <laughs> and they do bake a lot. So, um, so, so I think we're all chosen because we're interested in baking, first of all. And I don't think that they would have a presenter or a, or a host who was whose stock in trade was being nasty because it wouldn't mm. fit with the Bake Off ethos. And the Bake Off ethos just grew because it started as a baking show, and 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 that's what bakers are. I mean, yeah. you go to a village, um, a village competition for the best Victoria sponge. They're not going to undermine each other. Those women who are baking their cakes and the kids who are sending in their cookies. It's it's very friendly and and loving and tolerant. So it suits me. I like it, and. Um, and it is a safe space. I think the reason it's so successful is that life is just so tough for so many people, and especially at the moment with, you know, cost of living and the horrors of Ukraine and everything else, that it's just lovely to have, a, I don't sort of want to use the word safe space, but it, that's really what it is. It's somewhere where you can switch off for an hour Watch cake. What could be nice? <laughs> Watching cake other than eating cake. Um, uh, and know that nothing nasty is going to happen. I mean, mm. only stress will be for the bakers running out of time or something. And yes. it's not your stress, it's their stress. I do think it is, uh, not to overblow it because it is a show about cake, but that there is something really powerful about one of the most watched shows not being house of cards or, you know, these things that tell stories about the worst of human nature, but being a place where we're reminded that we can actually get on with each other really well and we can yeah. find things in common and we can be kind and funny and thoughtful, even if we might believe radically different things. And I just think yeah. it's a great thing it exists. So thank you for doing it. 
<laughs> thank you, thank you. I wish I could c- claim all the credit, but all I'm just you know one of the one of the um, cogs in the wheel. But I'm really glad to be there because it is it is. I think it is an important thing, and and I think interestingly in lo- in lockdown, um, all sorts of government um, people were really keen to keep it going because they realised that it was a, not a, not a sticking plaster, but it was something a soothing salve. Yeah. For much of the nation. Yes, national morale. Yeah. Um, Pruleith, you have been very generous with your time and I'm so grateful for you speaking to us during your busy time in America. Thank you for speaking to me on The Sacred. Thank you, Elizabeth. Well, I've enjoyed it. Well, the first line that stuck out to me was Prue saying, I hope I would be as nice to the dustman as to the king. And that seems, uh, on one level, a kind of cliche or a nicety or a kind of throwaway line. But I actually think there's something quite profound about it, that that commitment, that posture to make eye contact with every human being that crosses our path, to treat them with dignity and respect, really requires quite a lot of concentration and intention because pressures on our time, pragmatism at trying to get stuff done and just the training frankly we get about who's valuable and who's not means that it's very easy actually to find ourselves not treating every human being equally particularly around status and how powerful or not they are what they can give us and I really loved um Prue making clear that that's a deep commitment for her uh I also really enjoyed her honesty about yep she had a kind of liberal um family living under apartheid but that when she moved away and lived in Paris and was then mixing socially with people of a different skin color she felt within herself still that kind of residual prejudice and just the kind of beauty and the sadness of that memory that very visceral memory that she described so beautifully about being snuggled up to her nanny who was black and the sense of closeness, skin to skin contact and then the sort of dehumanising weirdness of that nanny having to sit at the back of the bus when she could sit at the front. It just, um, yeah, it reminded me again as if we needed it of the kind of ridiculous, cruel nonsense of that system and associated kind of legacies that still remain. She was very rude about the Alpha course. Um, She did say people were very kind and very sweet, but it's clearly not her cup of tea aesthetically. And then that beautiful sad story about being in grief and crying out to God in a church and the Britishness of being overheard in that moment of deep vulnerability and prayer and just being like, oh, lovely dog, um, was just uh, an absolute gem. I really think that the clarity again it shouldn't need saying but sometimes it does that we can love people that we disagree with that we don't have to come to the same positions on things that we should be able to tolerate the tension of loving people who think that we're deeply wrong and loving people that we think are deeply wrong and letting the big feelings around that and Prue was very honest about you know sometimes not talking to Danny about Christian faith because he might find it distressing it can be distressing then when people we love feel very differently about things from us. And over the last few years, we've maybe had that within families on vaccines or on Brexit. 
and how deep we have to dig sometimes not to let that distress become anger and distance but just be able to to hold it one of my favorite quotes is from Parker Palmer who's a um, kind of political democratic theorist in the states and he talks about those who can hold tension in a heart opening way will have much to offer for the common good I think a lot about that what does it mean to be able to hold and tolerate the tension that difference automatically creates I referenced um, JFDI and we didn't get a chance to unpack it properly, but this was from a first email that Prue sent me saying that uh, her motto, that she'd actually tried to make her official motto, I guess, when she got her damehood, um, is just effing do it. Um, but that was it wasn't apparently approved. And I just love that about her, the kind of straightforwardness and she's not at all tortured. And her and Danny had that in common, this bias to action, this really seemingly complete lack of overthinking which I really envy and I wonder if is is a generational thing as well as a temperamental thing um and there's a real strength and beauty in it and also it's lovely because she doesn't take credit for it she doesn't use it as kind of moral superiority she says yeah I'm just lucky it's just the levels of serotonin in my brain I ended up feeling so annoyed and protective for her that she gets flack in public about such stupid things and I actually often feel this about famous people. I feel very protective of them because it's so easy for us to dehumanize them and for them to become this sort of cipher or symbol in our own imaginary games and to distance ourselves from them. And it's just another symptom of the ways that we dehumanize and distance ourselves from each other. And I know people will sort of get out their tiny violin about famous people, but actually I do think fame is one of the most distancing and dehumanising forces in the world and that we need to take care around it. So hopefully that didn't happen in the century. I don't think it did. Anyway, I obviously loved landing it in Bake Off and, you know, you can write it off as a kind of saccharine, cosy, sugar-coated distraction from the world and of course in some ways it is it's a very comforting program to watch but these cultural narratives are always important right they're formative things that we watch on repeat or listen to on repeat are telling us something about the world and what Baker is telling us is that it is possible for people from different socioeconomic backgrounds different sexual orientations different races different religious beliefs to become really good friends because they've spent a bunch of time together and that's a really good story to be told and I'm glad that it's being told um, and that proves part of it because I think she's ace. That's it for this series. Thank you so much for listening to The Sacred Podcast. As always, we would love it if you would leave us a little review, you would send an episode to a friend, you would put it on whatever social media platforms you are currently tolerating. Um and share it with people. My name is Elizabeth Oldfield. Our production team are Daniel Turner and Lizzie Harvey. Our music is by Luke Stanley with vocals by Lizzie Harvey and The Sacred is a project of the Think Tank Theos. Do get in touch. We love to hear from you. We've got a series reflection next week, but otherwise, until next time. <laughs>